0: This episode is a rerun. We'll be back with new interviews at the end of the month. Hello, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators at How To Academy, and the producer of this series. This week's guest is Glennon Doyle, founder of the NGO Together Rising, which has raised over $25 million for women, families and children in crisis. She's the author of the bestsellers Love Warrior and Carry On Warrior, and she joined Hannah McInnes to tell us about her new book, Untamed.
2: hello um good evening everyone or it's perhaps good afternoon or good morning depending on where you're tuning in from across the world i'm so delighted to welcome so many of you i can see the numbers here on behalf of the how-to academy um and thanks to the wonders of technology although i'm slightly wary always of saying that at the very start that i'm delighted we're all able to come together in this way even though it's slightly strange circumstances, and especially given there are so many books and ideas out there at the moment that need talking about, despite so many sadly cancelled events and live tours and lots of voices that need listening to, and not least Glennon's. So I'm thrilled uh, to welcome you, Glennon, and to be in conversation with you to discuss the ideas in your most recent book, which I'm going to flash up in the screen, uh, Untamed, Stop Pleasing and Start Living, which is already a New York Times bestseller and inspiration for our talk today. It's an intimate and deeply honest memoir and a call to women everywhere to stop thinking about what we should do and what we should be and how we should behave and start thinking more about listening to our inner selves and and acting more truly according to that. Um, And I'm sure she doesn't need... Any introduction. She is of course the author of New York Times best-selling other books, Love Warrior and Carry On Warrior. And she's an activist and a speaker, a thought leader, uh, and the president of an organization that I hope we're going to be talking about more a little bit later, Together Rising, which is a female-led non-profit organization that's raised over 25 million for people in need. But you haven't all tuned in to hear much from me. I know that I'm going to do as little talking as I possibly can and let you do the talking. We'll be in conversation for about 45 minutes, and then it will be time for questions. And I'm sure there will be many, so we will try and get in as many as we possibly can. Glennon, thank you very, very much for joining us. And I know that there are lots of bigger things to worry about at the moment, but having a council book tour is such a sad thing for anyone. I know that huge amounts of effort go into writing something, especially like a a memoir. How have you found not being able to do these events live? I
1: have found it to be much like the rest of my life, which is that you just make a lot of plans, (laughs) a lot of big plans, and you're sure of how things are gonna go. And then life happens and everything changes and you just pivot the best you can. You know, it was sad at first, and I, my whole team worked for a year on the tour, and we love the book so much. And, you know, but we just, and then, and then in the beginning, you have that feeling of, well, I feel sad, but I shouldn't feel sad because other people's pain is worse. So there's that whole situation. But, um, you know, mostly we've just switched to service, kind of. That was our mantra in the beginning. Okay out of promotion mode into service mode, which for us meant doubling down on Together Rising. And I started these morning meetings where I was just gathering my community together, and trying to offer some connection and comfort. And the interesting thing is, in some ways, it's my ideal book tour, because (laughs) I I never leave my house, On day 19 of quarantine, my wife turned to me on the couch and she said, has your life changed at all? (laughs) It's like, not really.
2: (laughs) I I do completely understand that. We were just saying before we came on that it's quite nice being able to do a live event in in sort of socks. But you say actually in, in in your book, there's a moment where you're sitting in there airport, I think, waiting to go and do a live event for Love Warrior. And you say, what is the point of being a writer if I have to say words about the words I've already written? But I imagine that for this book, you don't feel like that? Or or do you? In the beginning,
1: I did. I don't now. Somehow, like, all the themes in the book sort of came to life which is why I think it's resonating so much in this moment. We're kind of all stuck at home and having to figure out how to use pain as transformative power, right, which is what the book is about and sort of what this moment is about. So it has come to life in a real way that makes it feel real to me. But honestly, I find it one of the strangest parts of being an artist, you know, that you create the art, but then that's not it. Like you work, you put your blood, your sweat, your tears into this thing, you make it the best you possibly can. And then you hand it over. And then this whole other part starts, which is like, you have to become a commercial for the art you made, which
2: is a separate skill. <laughs> Luckily, you are, um, are very good at, at both those both <laughs> those skills. So uh, tell us a little bit about um, this title, Untamed. I know that You wrote it and you weren't sure. You wrote something today on Twitter about the the cover. It's all a a kind of, it all is untamed. The cover's untamed. The structure is slightly wild. Was that intentional? Did you mean for the sort of, the, the, the medium to be like that?
1: I needed it all to be like that. I mean, I wrote this book twice, okay? I don't know if you know this, but this is, so I wrote untamed. I knew that I needed to write a book about, Returning to ourselves, you know, about the concept that we are all born individual. We are all born with this wild true self. And then over time, we become conditioned, right? We become socially programmed. We have to assimilate into families and into schools and into communities and into religions and into all these places that in many ways require us to abandon our individuality to earn our belonging, right? Most of our communities are set up that way right now, where you can either have your individuality and be on your own, or you can have tribal thinking and earn safety of the, of the tribe, but, but you can't have both. Um, and so I wanted to, to talk about this idea of how you kind of get to a point. For me, it happened when I fell in love with Abby. When I met her, I had this thing, just this rising, this, this knowing that happened inside of me that I recognized as my true real self, right? A different self than the one that I had been sending out into the world to try to please people. The reason I knew that is because I wanted her and it was the first time I had wanted anyone beyond who I had been trained to want, right? Like it was the first totally wild thing that had ever occurred with me. So I knew I wanted to write a, a book about returning to this wild. And so I spent year write it about this theme I kept writing and I kept writing and Hannah it kind of sucked and I knew it kind of sucked down deep I knew it kind of sucked but I was hoping that no one else would know that it sucked right I just thought like maybe I've earned enough like street cred like maybe they'll think it's good okay and then A dear friend who I know that you know, Liz Gilbert, came to my home for the weekend and we were just sitting around and she said, read me what you have. And I started reading to her and Hannah, I'm watching her and she's laying on my couch and she's just sinking deeper and deeper into the couch. So I'm thinking this cannot be a good sign. It's not what you want to see, right? And I stopped reading and she says, Glennon. When you tell me your stories, I come to life. When you read me your essays, I want to slowly die. (laughs) So subtle, subtle, right? So this is what we figured out together, that I was writing a book about breaking free from existing structures, right? Like gender, like sexuality, like religion, like... But I was writing it inside of an existing structure, right? I was, I was staying inside of how a book is supposed to be written while I was writing about not acting the way we're supposed to act. So what I figured out is I had to somehow make the format as wild as the message was, like turn the medium into the message. So I needed the medium, I needed the format to be wild, I needed the content to be wild, and I needed the cover to be wild. So the cover was so hard. I mean it took us 200 covers to finally see it. And this woman, her name is Lynn Buckley, and she had come see me see me speak somewhere. And then she saw this artwork weeks later and she knew that that had that this artwork had to be in my life. She said it reminded her of my insides.
2: And she turned it into the cover. It's brilliant. And it, it is actually, you read it. You have to read it wild. You have to sort of race through it, like almost so like the animal that you, you talk about in your opening chapter, a cheetah. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the cheetah story. It ends the chapter with you saying, or in the middle, you say, I was a goddamn cheetah. Cheetah. <laughs> um, so how is that relevant to the tone and, and the theme of the whole book, that story?
1: Okay. So when I, at the time when I went to the safari park with my children and saw that cheetah run, which I'll tell you about in a minute, I was really trying to figure out, you know, as a writer, we're always looking for metaphors to like try to make visible the thing that is, the invisible ideas inside of us, right? And, you know, I was thinking back on the time when I was in, I was in a broken marriage with a good man, okay, and that is a very difficult place for a woman to be because we're supposed to be grateful, you know, when things are good enough, And I, our marriage was, you know, in the aftermath of, of infidelity and we were doing all of the things you're supposed to do to heal from that. He was working his ass off. I was working my ass off. We're waiting for forgiveness to like fall on our heads from the sky, you know, as a reward for all this hard work we were doing. And some days I was able to pull it off and smile and be grateful, but all the time I was just angry. I mean, I was angry on the inside while I was smiling on the outside. Right? I just was like this low-level river of rage, and I always had this like longing inside me. I knew I was supposed to be grateful. I had the kind of life of marriage and and life that you're supposed to be grateful for. But I still just had this deep longing for a love that was truer and deeper and less painful. And so, fast forward to this um, cheetah. I'm with my kids. We go to this cheetah run, okay? And we're waiting for the cheetah to come out and this zookeeper walks up and she's holding the leash to a yellow Labrador retriever, okay? So first I'm thinking, I am not a scientist, but I know that's not a cheetah. And if she tries to convince my kids that that's a cheetah, I'm getting my $7 back, okay? (laughs) So, So she says, Hey everybody, do you think this is Tabitha the cheetah? And all the kids go, no. And she said, you're right, this is not Tabitha, this is Minnie. This is um, a Labrador, this is a Tabitha the cheetah's best friend. And we raised Minnie the lab alongside Tabitha the cheetah to tame Tabitha. So now everything that Minnie does, Tabitha wants to do. So first you're gonna watch Minnie the lab run the cheetah run. And then Tabitha will do it. So we all watch Minnie chase this dirty pink bunny that's tied to a Jeep down the path. Yay, Minnie. Okay. So then the zookeeper says, it's time for Tabitha. So she opens up this cage and this gorgeous, majestic, terrifyingly huge creature steps out of the cage, okay? And her muscles are just rippling beneath her skin, And this majestic creature lines up on the starting line, chases the freaking dirty pink bunny down this well-worn path while a bunch of sweaty strangers applaud. And then the zookeeper throws her this old store-bought steak at the end, and we watch this beautiful creature lay in the mud and eat the steak. And the crowd is clapping, yay, Tabitha. And I am just sitting there realizing that I am having one of those moments because the taming of Tabitha felt so familiar to me, right? I just kept there. I sat there and thought, okay, if a wild animal like a cheetah can be tamed into forgetting who she is, forgetting her power, forgetting her majesty, forgetting... Her wild, and so can a woman, right? I felt like the reason why I was exhausted and overwhelmed and underwhelmed, and I felt like my purpose wasn't in line with who I was, and I didn't feel seen, was because I was chasing dirty pink bunnies my whole life, right? That in the form of all of these ideals and expectations that that people have about women, about sexuality, about religion, and all of these ideals that we chase and chase and chase that were never truly our desires in the first place, right? That somebody else trained us to chase.
2: So does that mean when you were writing it, did you have your readers in mind? Were they, and were they all women? Because actually one of the things you write really powerfully about is how it actually applies also to, um, to men and boys. I mean, you say being an American boy is a setup, but I think mm-hmm. it applies to boys. It certainly applies to boys in this country and in other places that they're born with a great potential for nurturing, caring and loving, you say, and let's stop training men out of training it out of them in a sense it's for boys too that message of oh God.
1: absolutely I mean they just have different dirty pink bunnies right I mean we are chasing we're told I was told I should say you know that to be a good girl I needed to be quiet and and smiling and accommodating and pleasing and small and uh pretty and those things made me slowly die inside and and boys in our culture are taught that they have to be invulnerable and certain and unmerciful and um, absolutely little boys are tamed just as severely as little girls are. It's the same process of social conditioning and social programming. And it's the same process of detoxing whatever your particular family, your particular culture, your particular gender, your particular religion, your particular nation told you to chase. right? And the unlearning of all of that for sure relates to boys just as much as girls. And I'm freshly obsessed with untaming boys because (laughs) what I figured out, Hannah, is like, I, you know, trying to follow the rules of being a good girl while tragically being fully human made me very sick for a long time. So I became bulimic when I was 10 and started abandoning myself and hiding from myself and numbing inside of addiction till I was 25. And so I was bound and determined to not let that happen to my little girls. So I was ridiculous, Hannah. Like I would, when I was pregnant with my girls, I would put like earphones on my stomach and play NPR like badass women like they would cry and I would be like yes use your voice be mad you know like somebody would call them bossy and I would say yes doesn't she have amazing leadership skills like I was rabbit okay and then one day I started figuring out oh my god I have a son too I have not been doing these things with him I have not been promising him day and night you can be vulnerable and you can be merciful and you can be tender and you can be you can cry and you can still be a boy. And truly we can look at our world right now and note without exaggeration that most of our world threatening problems are a direct result of toxic masculinity. <laughs> right? Like if we do not teach boys how to communicate better how to question how to be curious how to be empathetic how well i think one of the best things we can do to heal our world and by the way also protect our girls is to raise little boys who can experience their full humanity
2: yeah i i absolutely and you know one of the things that you keep saying mentioning is being a good good woman or a, a good good boy and actually i I'm living with my family at the moment, and one of the things that we've been discussing—I've disagreed with my mum on a lot of things in your book, and I know that you disagree with your mum. And I've heard other interviews you've done, and people's parents come into it a lot because that idea of being true to yourself and living with your, you know, authentic self, letting your wild self be free, she takes as a sort of quite a selfish attitude, and she says, you know, I need to be. I need to be there for everyone all the time. I need to sort of bend over backwards to be this person that my children need me to be. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, that's the problem that women have with this idea of untaming themselves. Well, I'm not therefore being selfless by doing yeah. it.
1: I guess I would just beg people to think harder about what they mean. Okay. So I also would agree with your mother that I want to give my children what they need we might disagree on what it is our children need, okay? And let me explain when I realized that in my own life. I almost did abandon myself. I almost did not leave my marriage. I almost did not follow the love of my life into this new world that I'm in where I feel freer, not perfect, not happy all the time, but freer than I ever had before. But I almost didn't because I was so tamed to believe that a good mother does not hurt her children.
2: Mm.
1: That a good mother, and it's so interesting, the word she used, bend over backwards, contort ourselves, contort, just, it's the language even suggests not being fully human, right? Until one day, I was braiding my daughter's hair and she turned to me and she asked me a question. She said, oh, she said, can I do my hair like yours, mommy? And something about the way she asked it, I had this realization. Every time my daughter looks at me, she's asking a question. Mommy, how does a woman do her hair? Mommy, how does a woman love and be loved? Mommy, how does a woman live? And I realized in that moment, oh, I am staying in this marriage for her. But would I want this marriage for her? And if I wouldn't want this marriage for her, then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering? And that is because I got the same memo that your mom got, yeah. which is that a good mother is a martyr, right? That a good mother, in order to honor her children, slowly dies, right? Slowly buries her ambition, her true self, her feelings, her desire, her all of it. Um, and she calls that love.
2: And then you quote Jung, I think, in there saying there's no greater burden then on a child than the unlived life of a parent.
1: Because think of what it does. When we model martyrdom for our children, we are sentencing them to martyrdom. Okay. Because if we teach them that the epitome of love is to bury yourself, then they will forever spend their lives trying to reach that epitome. Right. Because we are literally teaching them that love means to disappear. When in fact, love means the opposite of that. Love requires the lover and the beloved to fully emerge. We must teach our children that. Mm -hmm. What I would say is yes, mothers always want their children to have what they need. But what I would argue is that what children need is parents who are giving themselves permission to live fully because children will only live as fully as we allow ourselves to live. And so as mothers, It is our duty not to settle for any relationship, any life that's less true and beautiful than the one we'd want for our babies.
2: Yeah. And you obviously, the moment that you really had to go through that discovery was when you were telling them that you had decided to divorce Craig and, and to marry Abby. And when you look back now, do you see, I know you do, but that was the right thing. The impulses that led you there were the true impulses.
1: Yeah, I would say that, and I knew that, by the way, before, I would never have done that if I didn't know, yes. if I didn't know in my roots and in my bones and in my whole entire self that doing this was, a, was an honoring of myself, was, an, was, a, was, a, was a refusal to abandon myself for one more minute, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, there, the, the, the doubt in my mind is non-existent that it was the right thing to do, and that doesn't mean that it's not hard. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, every week I look at my foyer and there's a bunch of little bags and shoes because they have to go from our house to Craig's house. And every time I see it, it breaks my heart. It's just like, Oh, you know, it's just, there's a sadness in it. And also I think one of the things we forget is we make a decision and then it we feel pain sometimes or it feels hard and we second guess our decision. But what I have learned is that sometimes things can be hard and still be
2: exactly right. Yeah. that That is exactly what I wanted to talk about. And it's a huge theme in your book is, is pain and how um, we should feel pain, live with pain, let pain sit with us. And it feels relevant to all of life, but it feels so relevant now. You know, when a lot of people... Well, there's a lovely quote. I, I thought it was so brilliant, and I know it describes well, me and lots of people, but we're like snow globes. We spend all of our time, energy, words and money creating a flurry, trying not to know, make sure the snow doesn't settle so we never have to face the fiery truth inside us. And your message in the book that seems so relevant now is that those times where you just have to stop that flurry and, and sit with yourself are perhaps some of the most important times. I know that there's lots of tragedy at the moment, but do you think there's something to be said for this time where we all have more time to do that than perhaps ever before? I do. And I am not one of those people who would ever say, oh, this is great. This
1: is a great opportunity for all of us. Look at the silver lining. Like, no, I'm running a nonprofit for for women and children in need. And I know that the loss right now is staggering and in many, many ways unprecedented because we are trying to grieve without being able to get to each other and that is brand new and paradigm shifting and it's unbelievable but what I also notice, I should say and I also notice not but, is that there's this double thing going on which is that all of this pain is going on out there and we're stuck in our homes, okay? Right now, When we are being faced with this truth, which I would describe as like the fiery thing in the middle, right? That that has always been true, by the way, that we are incredibly vulnerable as Mm. human beings, that nobody is in control, right? That things can change on a dime, that at the end of the day, all we really have is our health and each other. Always true, by the way. Mm. But now we're stuck with it in our face and we're all out of distractions, the way we deal with the beauty and terror of being human is that we just keep ourselves busy all the time, right? We just, we just keep that snow globe shaken up with busyness and commitments and grudges we have against people and like all the things. And now this, it's like a great settling. It's a great settling of the snow. And what I know is that everything beautiful, everything good in my life, Every true relationship that I have, my personality, my career, my, all of it stems from being able to sit with the snow globe when the snow is settled because that's what sobriety is, right? Sobriety is everything comes from my sobriety for me, and sobriety in early recovery is just a forced settling of the snow globe with all, with all your distractions gone. And in in early sobriety, I learned I went to um, one of my first recovery meetings, and I was in so much pain because I hadn't been sober for 15 years, so most of my formative life. Okay. And the thing about early sobriety, Hannah, is that by the, by the time you get to early sobriety, you've generally made it a mess of your entire life. You've ruined everyone's lives around you, <laughs> so they all are desperate for you to get sober. And so they're promising sobriety to you like it's some kind of nirvana. So you're like, fine, I'll do it. I'll get sober. And then it sucks. It's terrible. Like all I did was think about, oh, that's right. This is why I got sober in the first place or started drinking in the first place. So what I um, did is I went to my fifth sobriety recovery meeting and um, I stood up and I said, okay, okay. My name is Glennon, and I feel awful. And I'm worried now that this awfulness means that my problem was not the drinking. My problem was beneath the drinking, that my problem is actually me, and that there is some kind of secret to life that everyone else knows that I am missing. Because it feels like it's so much harder for me to be human than other people make it look. This woman came up to me after the meeting and she sat down next to me and I will never forget her face because she said, honey, I'm gonna tell you this thing that someone told me in early sobriety. And that is this, if there's a secret to life, the secret is that the reason it feels hard for you right now is not because you're doing life wrong, but because you're finally doing it right that feeling all of your feelings is incredibly hard, which is why so few people do it. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that all feelings are for feeling, even the hard ones. And Hannah, I understand that that might seem simple to you, but I am telling you that it rocked my world. Like, I did not know that. I feel like in our culture, we worship happiness so much. I thought that I was supposed to feel happy all the time. I didn't know I was supposed to feel everything. And so that began, after that meeting, began my commitment to feeling it all, regardless of how painful it feels. I thought back then that I could not feel all my feelings. This is what most people secretly believe, I think, which is why the settling is so terrifying, is because I think we secretly believe that if we allow ourselves to feel, we will fall into some kind of black hole from which we will never recover, (laughs) right? And what I learned is that is not true, that you can actually survive all of it. You can survive deep grief. You can survive anger. You can survive memories. You can survive all of it. And what I learned is that the pain is what makes you grow. Yeah. If we're here to keep becoming, we're just being human has to be about becoming true and more beautiful versions of ourselves. And the pain is the fuel for that becoming.
2: Can I read you um, there's the, the bit you, you do? You say, since I got sober, I have never been fine again, not for a single moment. I've been exhausted, terrified and angry. I've been overwhelmed and underwhelmed and debilitatingly depressed and anxious. I've been amazed and awed and delighted and overjoyed to bursting. I've been reminded constantly by the ache, this will pass. Stay close. I have been alive. And it makes me think that we so often say, how are you? You don't ever say, oh, I'm alive. You say, I am fine. And you, you know, there's something wrong really with fine. We shouldn't be fine. We should be right up or, or right down, but fine means we're not living truly. Half
1: dead. <laughs> yes, I am half dead, which is the goal here, right? It's like, fine is like a jacket. What does it even mean? I'm never fine. Fine isn't even the thing to try to be. It shouldn't be a goal. You know, so I don't know. I just realized that I'll take it all. I think that addiction is a lot about numbing. Like you feel like, oh, the brutal is too much and Mm -hmm. I'll just numb it. And what I realized is, no, if you want, I just want it all. Mm -hmm. I just want to feel the bad and the good. I want to feel the high and the low. I want to feel the joy and the pain. And that's how you feel alive.
2: And you, you talk a lot about imagination when, when you're talking about feeling alive. And you say that women, I know that a lot of people write to you. You read a lot of people's messages. And you say that they, when they write to you in the language that you call indoctrination, this idea of good and should and right. And you say you speak back to them in the language of imagination. And that our, our minds are excuse makers. And this is your, your words, not mine. Imaginations uh, are storytellers. So, So you feel that we should be living more in step with our imaginations and our, and our dreams really than running with these sort of the codes of society.
1: And I think it can lead to feeling freedom. I don't, I used to think this was a magic trick. Okay. It took me many years to figure out, like to put any sort of language to to understand what was going on. But what I did know is that most people, if you, um, if, they're, if you've earned their honesty, will tell you that they do have a deep longing inside of them, okay? That like most people are not just like, yes, this is my life, my relationships, my world, nailing it. Like this is exactly what I've always dreamed of. Like you, most people, will admit to some kind of discontent, some kind of longing for something different, just this kind of hunch that, oh, maybe it was supposed to be more beautiful than this, right? But when... And by the way, I'm not suggesting that everyone has a longing to, like, leave their husband and marry a female Olympian, okay? Although I highly recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. but A lot of my friends have a deep longing for a more beautiful relationship with the same person. But the interesting thing, Hannah, is when somebody admits their deep longing, so, yeah, I just – I feel like I was made for a different job or, like – Yeah, I just feel like my relationship could be, I would rather this. It will immediately be followed by 10,000 reasons they can't have that thing. So, and and there will always be a lot of language about supposed to. I I would love to do that, but I can't because I'm supposed to be, I'm a mom and I'm supposed to do this. I would love to do that, but a good woman wouldn't do that. I want, you know, but a responsible person, there's all the buts and all the can'ts and all the shoulds and all the goods and bads and rights and wrongs which by the way, are all man-made, culturally com- constructed concepts. Like there's no, every group has a different idea of what's right and wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so we know those ideas aren't pure, that they're created by a particular culture. So the cool thing is that what I realized is there is a way to bridge someone from that can't, should, shouldn't, supposed to write wrong language. Cause that's all in your mind. That's all indoctrination, right? That's all in our brain, stuff we've learned, stuff other people have taught us, not what we were born with. There's a way to bridge indoctrination to imagination, and this is what it is. I don't know why this works, but it does. So someone's telling me all the reasons they can't do the thing their longing is leaning them towards. And I say, okay, can you tell me the truest, most beautiful marriage you can imagine? Can you tell me a story about the truest, most beautiful career you can imagine? Can you tell me a story about the truest, most beautiful community you can imagine? And then, Hannah, this magical thing happens, which is you can actually see all the gears of the conditioning and the um, indoctrination stop. And this thing rises up. This storyteller rises up. It's like everybody knows what inside of them they can imagine as the truest, most beautiful.
2: And you say to them it's something that I—it's so important. It seems so simple, but feels genuinely so important. Is write these things down, yeah. write these dreams down, write them down. Get a pen and paper, a notebook, you know, a bullet journal. But it does make a difference to you. I think you, yes, yeah, you said the people who build their truest, most beautiful lives usually write them down.
1: Yeah, because it's like. I started to think about it like an architect, like you really are planning something beautiful and no architect or fashion designer or anyone. You don't go from the dream to the reality. There's a step in between, right? There's the dream, then there's the drawing, then there's the reality. It's like the true and beautiful has to come to life one dimension at a time. And I also think that each of those things is like one step closer. It's like you have the knowing, you have the longing, you have the whatever you wanna call it, the imagination but it's terrifying to admit it's there because once you admit it's there, then you might have to do something about it. And the doing always requires some kind of massive disturbing of the universe. Even when it's admitting that you can imagine a truer and more beautiful relationship than you're in, then you have to say that to the other person. Like, Oh my God. It's just like, Oh, like causing women, especially are so much We are so good at deciding that it is better to cause inner conflict than to cause outer conflict. It's like we have decided that it costs too much to say the thing or to do the thing because that rocks the boat out there. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to pay that price. But I think what we forget is that when we don't do the thing, when we swallow the thing, when we pretend it doesn't exist, there is also a price to pay which is that we slowly die inside. Yeah. Hey there.
2: The importance and you talk about later of right you know asking the awkward question mm-hmm. always sort of essentially you know the elephant in the room it's so important that we that we bring these things up, but one of the other things you know you mentioned that we're somehow conditioned to be try and be, I think women in particular, perfectionists. Mm -hmm. You talked about Elizabeth Gilbert at the beginning and actually we're very lucky to have an event with her um, a year or so ago and she called perfectionism, I think she said it was fear dressed up in heels and a mink coat. And it really resonated with people, but it feels like you and Liz and and lots of other people are keen to make this idea of perfectionism outdated because we do, we strive for it, but we shouldn't. Yeah, I don't even know what it means
1: anymore. Like, I really don't, I don't, I have a hard time even discussing the concept because I have lost any belief in the idea of what that perfect is. I think perfect might just be a perpetual procrastination, whatever the fear is that keeps us from showing up in the world. And I, I mean, maybe that's because I'm an artist and I believe that art in its deepest, truest self has nothing to do with showing off and has everything to do with showing ourselves. So I'm not interested in perfect art. I'm interested in messy, wild art that makes me feel seen as a human being.
2: One of the sort of, problems with perfectionism that you write about is perhaps a a, a type of perfectionism which is body image and And you said you know that you still have those biases now kind of instilled in you you have for decades and that struggle to sort of love your body and 50% of your thoughts are about that You, you say and I'm sure you speak for so many people and I just wondered what your advice is to try and shake that to try and to free yourself from that those kind of constructs constructions constricting thoughts okay well you have asked the wrong
1: person about that one. let me let me start with that um here's what i i can tell you how i think about it how i've started thinking yeah. about it this yeah i think that most of my issues and maybe maybe this is what I would call, what you're calling perfectionism, I would call control. So maybe that's that's the same thing. I tend to be a kind of fearful person, okay? I don't know how to describe that other than I just feel like life is very precarious and anything could go wrong at any minute. And I love my people very deeply. And so I always thought that my job as a wife, as a mother, was to control my people to a bloody pulp, and call that love, (laughs) call that leadership. And I have done that in all of my relationships my whole life. I married Abby, and this suddenly stopped working. She just, I don't know. First of all, she's
2: uncontrollable. (laughs) But also... You write about this wonderfully in the book, and I, I love it. I'm so glad you brought this up.
1: Thank you. She just... Also, as something about two women being married to each other, we just like talk incessantly. We're always like in each other's business and like analyzing each other's emotions and brain. It's just like we never stop. And so one night I was doing the thing where I was kind of just manipulating, but I think she doesn't know what I'm doing. And she stopped me and she said, Glennon, I see what you're doing. And I need you to know that when you try to control me like that, it hurts my feelings so much because it makes me feel like you don't trust me and you don't respect me. And I trust you so much and I respect you so much. And I really want you to trust me too. And the way she said it, and she's such a vulnerable, clear communicator, which makes it easier to understand. But what I realized is, oh, okay, I can either control Abby or I can – love abby but i can't do both because it's one or the other because love requires trust and you only control things that you don't trust i am coming back to the body thing so i'm exploring this idea of taking control out of love and just Trusting Abby because part of this being coming untamed is like, okay, great. Now I fiercely trust my own knowing, my own imagination, my own emotions. That means I have to fully trust other people's too. But what I realized about my body, I have had body and food issues. Obviously, I told you I became blemic when I was 10. I have. Spent my entire life trying to free myself from these messages that I learned so early that it is my job as a girl and a woman to stay small. That somehow I earn my worthiness by keeping my body very small. Now, I've somehow figured out how to untame those messages in terms of ambition. I no longer try to keep my ambition small. I no longer try to keep my emotions small. I no longer try to keep my uh, voice small. But I can't seem to shake this freaking body thing and it makes me so frustrated and so angry because and embarrassed because i'm supposed to be this like feminist leader it would be much more badass if i could if i could stop being this way and it's so infuriating because yeah like i told abby i would say that 50% of every thought that i have during the day is about food or body stuff which Infuriates me because I'm a smart, powerful woman, and the opportunity cost of those thoughts. When I think about the art I could make if I could have those thoughts back, the activism I could um, unleash if I could have—that's the price of being tamed.
2: But I right? think, it's, and you being so uh, honest about it, it definitely still makes you a very good leader. <laughs> There's your inspirational talk for the day. You need that that honesty, and I'm so I, I have. So many more questions, but I have, I have to hand over to the very many questions I can see coming up. But can I just quickly, before I do, just talk to you about one very powerful chapter in your book. They all are, but islands. And I, I, we've spoken about you deciding to tell your children and make those decisions when you decided to, to marry Abby. But the, the thing that felt to me like almost the biggest moment, and you said it, for, for the first time in your life, you decided to trust yourself, even though that was moving away from what your parents the direction of your parents. And, you know, you describe this idea of you and your family being on an island. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you yes. tell us a little bit about that metaphor? You, and you do use a lot of wonderful metaphors. I think you said you had to take quite a few metaphors out, but thank goodness this one stayed in.
1: Yeah, my poor children. Uh, they're like, Mom, it's just a water bottle. Mom, it's just a wall. Like, they are, everyone in my life is so over metaphors, and I will never stop. It's the only way I can understand anything. Um, so, so I would, I, I, since I wrote that chapter, I think that you can think you're really untamed until you have to talk to your parents, right? Like I know some of the fiercest activists, they are on podiums, they are speaking at marches, they are preaching equality and justice and freedom from the rooftops. And then they come home and cry because they don't feel free with their parents. There is something about the parent-child thing, that, whether or not your parents even in your life, whether or not your parents even alive still, it's just trying to separate from the idea that a good person lives to make their parents happy or lives in line with their parents' values or lives to get the approval of your parents. So I actually am very close with my mother she's one of my best friends in the whole world we're actually just incredibly codependent okay we talk like seven times a day and the moment that i had to tell her that i was divorcing craig and in love with abby was harder than any of the other moments going public seeing my name and takedown pieces all over the country being excommunicated from religious denominations like none of that was as hard as telling my mom and she was very afraid okay she was terrified of what the world would say she was terrified of how the world would treat our children she was terrified that this new family we were creating was just going to be rejected and so because of that every time i spoke to her her fear would come through just like the anxiety and all of her questions and i found myself getting very defensive and justifying myself and explaining myself and that is always a red flag that you're starting to abandon yourself right when you find yourself explaining and justifying right because especially when you're a grown-ass woman who can do what she wants right if you're justifying you're on your way to abandonment yeah and I heard my mom say okay we're gonna come visit you next week your dad and I and I said no you can't come I said mom you are afraid and our children are not afraid. They, we taught them that love is love and that it's best to be yourself and let the world catch up. They don't carry the fear you carry, but if you bring it here, they will help you carry it because they love and trust you. So I have to tell you this very hard thing, which is that your fear is not our problem. You have a problem and you can't come to the island of our family until you're ready to walk over the drawbridge with nothing but love and celebration and acceptance. And I know for a fact, Hannah, that that is the moment I became a grown-up. That that is the moment where I realized there is no math here. There is no, do I honor my mother or do I honor myself? No. The best way to honor my parents is to trust fully the woman they raised. It is a dual honoring to honor yourself. And I got the miracle of my mom just being like, holy shit, and becoming like a complete badass. And now she's the biggest activist in our family. And most people, she is, Hannah, she has been to more gay pride parades than Abby and I combined. (laughs) So, but everybody doesn't get that miracle. You know, some people actually do lose people in their lives. And I have lost people in my life. And I will lose as many people as it takes to never have to lose myself again.
2: I have to reluctantly, I mean, I'm so glad there are so many questions popping up and I have far too many more. I can't believe it's gone way too quickly. You have to extend the meeting by oh, it. Girl, I double, 10 minutes. I double. We've been talking for 50 minutes I've taken oh. up. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to ask you my, my other questions over a cup of coffee another time. Um, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to start reading these. Someone, someone asks you, what was the hardest thing for you to write about in the book?
1: Oh God that's good I was it was hard for me to write about my mom. It was hard for me to write about there's a little um, part in race in the chapter about, that's called racists about my dad not um, kind of showing up the way that I needed him to show up when I was really sick with an eating disorder and we still haven't talked about it in person like he read it we you know and we still, Wow. We can't there are, I learned from my parents that there are things that you can write about that you will you can't speak about yeah. and I know that he honors my choice to write about that because it was important but we haven't been able to speak about it yet I hope we will
2: and that's a very important chapter that we we haven't discussed but everyone will be reading the book so they, they will yeah. they will see it and um, this is this is interesting because again you, you write a lot in the book I think about um, the intrusion of people calling your phone, and and generally, you said before, you're so happy to be staying at home. There's one point, I think, where Abby says, does that mean we can go to parties? No. Uh, Someone says they worry about their daughter being socially anxious, and they're worrying about how they support her to be herself while ensuring she isn't rude, and they find the balance hard.
1: Oh, God, that's so hard. Um, Yeah, I, I do. I have a couple friends who deal with this. It's a hard answer for me, and it's gonna sound a lot easier said than done, but I would always try my hardest to honor my kids' needs above honoring my need for other people to think my child was not rude. I um, really wish that I had been forced into fewer social interactions. I wish that I had, that the way I was as a child was honored. I think we can honor all different kinds of kids, and I think that a a super socially anxious kid is probably never going to be a social butterfly, no matter how much she's shamed into it. She might end up being a 44-year-old New York Times bestseller who has a couple friends and is doing just fine, thank you.
2: (laughs) Um, there are so many brilliant questions. Your questions are brilliant, everyone. Um, one, of someone, someone says, one of my favorite quotes from you is that you only respect women who are angry. Uh, can you talk a bit more about channeling anger into positive action?
1: Yeah. I mean, Hannah, this is like this recurring thing that would happen over and over again at my speaking events. Somebody would always stand up and say, Glennon, I'm just struggling so much with anger. Like, what's wrong with me? I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. And I would be like, oh my God. Yes, like the two kinds of women I respect, two kinds. Women who are angry and women who are in a coma. That's it. And if you are in a coma, when you wake up, I'm going to send you some links and you are not going to believe the shit we have going on down here, right? I just, and this is so obvious, like the reason we struggle with anger or we try to manage our anger is because we have been taught over and over again that we shouldn't feel angry. Okay, so the minute that a woman's a woman starts to feel angry, she assumes that there's something wrong with her instead of assuming that that just means there's something wrong out there, that there's something wrong in her relationship, in her home, in her community, in her nation, in her world, that she might be able to be a part of helping change. And that is because it is very important for power structures to make sure that every marginalized group feels ashamed of their anger because angry people tend to demand change. So, I feel quite angry a lot of the time and I have decided to consider that my signal there's something that needs to get done. I love angry women. Some of the biggest world, nothing has ever gotten done for good in this earth that didn't start with a bunch of pissed off women. (laughs) We have to start respecting it and channeling it. And I don't mean the kind of anger that sits inside of you and makes you snark and be bitter and slowly die. I mean the kind of anger that brings you to life, brings you to your purpose, and brings you to your people.
2: And there's a few people who who are interested in your writing process and where you write, how you approach that process of of writing. Do you write in the room that you're sitting in now? Okay, so I'll tell you. I wish I – I'm going to try to
1: bring you over here.
2: All right, so I wrote my first two books in a closet – Okay.
1: I'm not, I'm not like being metaphorical, like an actual closet because I was in a very tiny house and I had, and the children just took it over the whole thing. And the only quiet place in the whole home was my closet. So I was so excited to get Abby and I bought a bigger house together. That was my old house with my ex-husband, bought a bigger house together. And I got an office and that is what I'm in right now. And I was so excited. And guess what? I couldn't write a word in this damn office. I don't know why. I, there might, I think there's too many distractions. I started writing in a closet again. Um, and that's it. And my writing process is that I can only write in the mornings. I don't know anything after 11 a.m., And I don't ever concentrate on word count or anything like that. I think a piece of art has to be exactly the amount of words it's supposed to be and not an extra word and not a word less. So I never worry about that. Um, And I let it come and go since the quarantine happened. So for the last two months I haven't written a word and I feel no panic about that. I think there are times for becoming and times for writing about it. And I always say I will never write in a book until I become a new woman. There's a lot of life and change that has to come before you're ready to enter that sacred contract with a reader that's like, okay, I have a new thing that is about new things, not old things,
2: right? Um, I'm worried. I hope we won't get caught. I'm going to quickly do this very last one. You you can um, hopefully answer quite quickly because I think it's very important. I'm a woman used to speaking my mind, which drives people to keep telling me I'm too controversial (laughs) and and I don't need to create controversy all the time. So people are really not used to, you know, people who show their opinions. It's so interesting today in London, one of our MPs said something and they were told to watch their tone, which there's a certain tone that, that women perhaps are meant to have
1: if only women, if only we could crack that code of what that perfect tone is that we are supposed to use to say things so people will hear us. It's almost as if there's no perfect tone and tone policing is just a way to keep us absolutely silent.
2: Yeah, I, I'm so, so sorry um, to, have to, to have to wrap it up because I, I know how these things work and I don't want to suddenly it to all go black before I thanked you enough. <laughs> and also to say that if people want there'll be a replay video sent to everyone who within 24 hours and a link to a lovely independent bookshop primrose hill books where they can buy your brilliant book but thank you so so much for joining us it's been really wonderful hearing from you i don't want to yeah i had
1: so much fun i seriously feel like this entire interview was five minutes an hour great (laughs) Thank
2: Thank thank you very very much indeed thank you everyone Bye, everybody. Thank
0: you. This week's show starred Glennon Doyle and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Head to our website, howtoacademy.com, for more inspirational talks and conversations, including a summer programme of free live streams with some of the world's leading authors and thinkers, and the archives for this very series. And Vas Christodoulou,